Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Daniel Weisfeld. Daniel is a third-generation mobile home park owner-operator who grew up fixing porches and mowing lawns at his grandfather's mobile home parks on the West Coast in California and Washington. He has a JD and an MBA from Yale University, and he is a licensed attorney in the state of California. He is also a licensed manufactured home dealer in California, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Impressive. Uh, His research on real estate and housing in general has been published in the New York Times, the LA Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andrew. Really, really glad to be here. Awesome, dude. Uh, Would you mind telling us a little about your background and you know how you got into the manufactured housing business and chose to to follow your uh, your grandfather's footsteps. Yeah, absolutely. So let me give a little background on my family. I think I'll start there. My mother was born on a chicken farm in Israel, uh, wow. and so was my grandfather. He's really a farm boy. Came to the U.S. with nothing, you know, like a hundred dollars in a suitcase kind of deal, and he needed to make a buck. So he started buying wrecked cars at a junkyard, fixing them in his backyard, and selling them. And eventually saved enough money to open a body shop and then saved enough money to buy a mobile home park around 1980. So when I was a kid in the summers, I'd go up with my grandfather. And by the way, he's still, you know, he's 89 years old. He's still living. He's still with us. I saw him last week. He's kind of a, a hero and a mentor for me. And so in the summers, I'd go as a kid. I'd help him in the body shop, you know, paint the cars, whatever it was. And I'd go help him with the mobile home park to mow the lawn, paint the fence. You know, he was a very hands-on owner-operator who really, you know, embodies the American dream, came here with nothing and ended up building real wealth by owning, you know, cash flowing real estate. Um, and so that was kind of my family background. I didn't think I was going to be a trailer park guy when I grew up <laughs> to, to, to use that term. I, I, I had other um, professional dreams. So I ended up, I worked as a U.S. diplomat. Um, I got a law degree. I got an MBA. I worked in the corporate world. I had the chance to do some really exciting research on affordable housing that got published in national publications. And it was really maybe, you know, three, four years ago, I was working on my W-2 job and I was thinking about real estate all the time. And I realized I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I realized the opportunity in manufactured housing. And I realized, you know, this thing that my family had been doing, which I thought was really kind of, you know, unsexy, not that interesting. I realized the crucial role it plays in society. And I realized that I'd have a running start if I got into this space because of my family's background. So that's really what motivated me back in 2017 to leave the the nine to five, leave the corporate job, become an entrepreneur and start Three Pillar Communities. And our mission from day one was was a two-part mission. You know, we have a mission to our residents and to our investors. So the mission is to provide safe, reliable housing to our residents and safe, reliable returns to our investors. I love that. That's fantastic, man. And- uh, how long have you owned mobile home parks? You know, how long was it then that you started, you know, three pillars? How many properties have you kind of bought during that time? And, you know, how many lots are you up to? Great question. So at this point, we are at 
top 50 operator of parks in the U.S. I think we're up to about 2,700 lots, if I remember correctly. That number always fluctuates. So I say somewhere more than 2,500 and less than 3,000. We own 30 communities in five states. We do all of our property management and asset management in-house. I think that's really important. So we have about 50 employees um, creating value out in the communities. Um, and you know, we start we started the company in 2017. Since then, we've acquired 18 parks. And on top of the 18 we've acquired, we we manage 12 others. So that's why we're we're managing a portfolio of 30 parks. Very nice. Wow, that's fantastic. You. you know, I'll, I'll kind of jump right into this, you know, since you have very much so a lot of experience on the, the operational side, you know, what would you say is the hardest part about the business in your eyes, Daniel? Do you mean on the operational side or kind of more broadly as, a, as an entrepreneur? I would say on the operational side, because that's where I, you know, I see a lot of our mm-hmm. uh, kind of day-to-day headaches is, is operationally, yeah. but what do you think? Yeah. So for me on operations, the biggest challenge is changing the psychology of residents when we buy parks that have been neglected and we're trying to turn them into a place that people are proud to call home. And I believe that owning mobile home parks requires a partnership between the owners and the residents. And we come in with our value add plan to, you know, pave the roads, put up new signage, bring in new homes. You want to make this a great community that people are proud to live in and proud to raise their families in. And it requires a partnership with the residents, right? They got to be on board. Because you can pave the roads and put up new signage all day long, but if they've still got, you know, six junker cars on their lot and 10 pit bulls running around, you ain't going to have a nice community. And so, and this is something you can't, you know, there's the, what is it? The, um, there's the, the iron fist and the velvet gloves, right? (laughs) You got both of those tools, uh, you're using in order to, to create influence. And you can't just hammer people with, with an iron fist. It, that is not the way that people get on board with the program, right? So it's very much about, I think, resident psychology and saying, hey, yeah, maybe this park was a neglected trailer park for the past 30 years, but things are changing and we, we need you to get on board. And we, want, we want you to be a part of this process. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's huge. And what have, you, what have you done to kind of do that and, and had success doing that to change that psychology? That's a great question, I can think of two parks that I think are really good examples. Um, one is Serene Terrace Mobile Home Park, which is in the Seattle market um, in Linwood, Washington. We lo- I mean, we love the Seattle market. Great you know, job growth, mostly driven by tech, lots of population growth, you know, very strong housing market, lots of, lots of affordable housing demand and not enough supply. So it's one of the structure it's a market we love. And we bought Serene Terrace Mobile Home Park for... $10 million uh, in early 2018 from a family that had owned it for 50, 60 years, right? And so it's, and I'm sure you've seen this all the time, right? Like grandpa built the park back in the 50s. And, you know, when he built it, it was a great retirement community, 55 and up. And they had the fishing derby and they had the clubhouse. They had the billiards room. And then the kids inherited it and they don't really know how to manage parks. And the thing just went downhill and it's been neglected. And even now you've got a bunch of old 1970s single wides with no paint on them. And the lake where you have the fishing derby is full of weeds. And we're, we, we bought the thing and it's a turnaround, right? And how did we get residents on board? First of all, we meet with all of them. Every time we buy a park, we host a meeting. And, you know, we treat people like people. We get pizza and drinks or cookies and coffee, whatever it is. They say, hey, come meet. We shake hands. We meet them. Or at least we shook hands before coronavirus. I don't know if we shake hands <laughs> right now. We used to shake hands. Um, we meet everybody and we, we explain, uh, you know, like I said, this is a partnership. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we even need you to do. 
Mm-hmm. And then additionally, we invested in the community in a way that empowered residents. So they had a residence association we, and they were doing great stuff like running a food pantry for Nate, for other senior neighbors who couldn't get out of the house and couldn't get food. We said, we'll support that. You know, we'll can voluntarily contribute a couple hundred dollars a month to your residence association. We want you to be doing those kinds of programs. Like we want you to know that we're on board with creating this a sustainable community. So that kind of thing. And then they're still suspicious. They want to know, you know, talk is talk. Talk is cheap, right? They want to know, is this guy the real deal? He says he's going to improve the park. Is it true? And so then when they see us starting to pave the roads and put in the new homes and upgrade the landscaping, I think that's where it kind of clicks. And they say, all right, these guys are doing their parts. Now kind of we realize we got to raise our game also. And that's where you got the people, you know, if you've got those drug dealer residents or the other folks, they kind of start realizing maybe this isn't a place I want to be anymore. Yeah. It's, it's not a, neg- they, the drug dealers tend to like neglected parks where no one's watching. And when they see that we're watching, sometimes they just voluntarily move on. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is exactly what you want. So a lot of our listeners are, you know, passive investors or interested in mm-hmm. investing into the asset class. You know, what would you sure. say are the most important, the most important things that passive investors need to look out for when investing into this asset class? That's a great question. I probably approach that from a pretty unique point of view um, because my strategy is different from a lot of the other syndicators and a lot of the, and a lot of the other funds in this asset class. And, and, you know, you and I spoke, my strategy is pretty different from your strategy. Definitely. Um, so let me explain my strategy first. I think it's to explain where I'm coming from on this, and then I'll translate that to advice for a passive investor. Okay. Um, so our strategy is focused on buying great mobile home parks in great markets and holding them long-term. That's the basic model. That's how I saw my family came to the U.S. with nothing and they built real wealth. Um, and that's what I, I think the best way to build long-term wealth in real estate is by buy great assets, fix them, improve them, do that work, and then hold them long-term. And in my view, there's no reason to sell because you can harvest that value great by doing cash out refinancings. So yeah. I, I personally don't want to sign up for a five-year fund life or a 10-year fund life. I want to be in the business to own these assets for the next 50 years, the next 100 years. And, and as you know, they, they ain't making a lot more of them. Right. So there's, there's, limit, there's limited supply, there's rising demand, they're hard to find. Once you find them, I don't want to get rid of them. I want to build that portfolio. Yeah. Um, and we, so based on that strategy, we care a lot about the markets we invest in. Right. I, I'm not looking to go to weak markets where there's you know, flat population growth or declining population growth to try and buy a 10 cap and get a, you know, a 15% or 20% cash on cash yield. That's a great way to get cash flow. That's a great business. There are people who do that very effectively. But for us as long-term holders, we're, we're really focused on quality of the market. And I think sometimes in mobile home parks, so this is my advice to passive investors. I think people sometimes in mobile home parks forget the first rule of real estate, which is location, location, location. And they, they, instead they get fixated on the asset class and they think, oh, it's a mobile home park. Every mobile home park is good. So I'm going to go buy it in any market in the middle of nowhere because it's a mobile home park. That's a strategic mistake. So for me, the biggest advice is follow the first rule of real estate, pick markets you believe in and that have strong, affordable housing demand. That might be a famous market like Silicon Valley or Seattle, or it might be a market you never heard of, but it's got a university or a meatpacking plant and no one's built new houses there for a while. And it really kind of, you know, it pencils from a supply demand perspective. That's my first piece of advice. The second piece of advice is go with operators whose philosophy is aligned with yours. 
right? If, if you're trying to maximize cash flow and you want a five-year hold, great. There are some really good operators for that. If you're looking at you know, where you're allocating your money across your portfolio and you've already got stuff in tech or stocks and bonds, you know, it's a little more volatile and higher growth, and you're seeing mobile home parks as long-term stable passive income, then you might go with an operator more like me who has a super long-term hold strategy. Yeah, no, I love that. That's those are great pieces of advice right there because you know everybody's looking for something different to kind of diversify that that portfolio. And typically, when people come to mobile home parks, you know they're seeing it as like a alternative investment, and it's it's not as mainstream. It's becoming more mainstream, but as part of that alternative category, it kind of gets that more uh, high risk kind of uh, tag put on it. But like you said, you know, in great markets, location. Uh, you know, affordable housing need. It, it's a great, stable, you know, investment as well. So thank you for sharing those. So what would, what would you say is one of the biggest mistakes or incorrect pro forma projections that you've made as an operator? Puyallup River RV Park. Seattle market, great market. We thought the deal was great. Roughly 40 space RV park. It's on septic. It's on well, you know, it's not a luxury deal. It's not the Hilton. It's long-term RV. It's on septic. It's on well. But again, it's a market with massive demand for affordable housing and not enough supply. And it's close to jobs. And it's a deal we believed in. And so we bought this thing about a year ago, understanding that, yeah, maybe there was going to be um, you know, some issues with the tenant base. We knew we'd have to do aesthetic upgrades. So we kind of, kind of you know, we buckled up. We knew it was going to be a turnaround. I did not anticipate that we'd need to... Uh, replace like three quarters of the tenants who were involved in a drug raise. Oh man. Yeah. And like, and people were, um, I mean, there were folks who were letting like local homeless people come into their homes and kind of use their home kind of as a bathroom. Um, there was a sweet little 80 year old lady who looked like a really cute old lady. And she pulled a gun on our manager. She's also legally blind, legally blind person holding a gun, pointing it at my manager. (laughs) So this this was, this was a park where again, we expected a turnaround, but, um, I think unless we had done like, you know, deep surveillance before the acquisition, we wouldn't, we, we would have no way to know the extent to which there was like kind of cultural problems embedded in the tenant base. Yeah. And again, we're responsible operators. We work with tenants. So we say, Hey, if you can get with the program, we want to make this a great place to live. And this was sure. just a park where three quarters of the tenants did not want to get with the program. Um, and so, yeah, we, we missed our budget projections big time. And we were telling our investors, hey, we still believe in the deal. We believe in the location. We're glad we bought it. We're not paying distributions for, you know, basically a year until every every dollar we earn, we need to reinvest in fixing this place. Yeah, but with your long-term strategy, you know, that'll be recouped, uh, I'm, I'm sure, very quickly. It's it's not about the first year, right? It's about 20 years from now exactly what that right. property's worth. So yeah. to piggyback on that, I mean, I've, I've definitely had similar deals. You know, I bought a deal in the center of Dayton, Ohio, which all the numbers showed Dayton was was doing very well. Mm-hmm. And there was only 15 occupied out of 50 lots. And wow. same same type of situation. The, you know, the 15 were there for a reason. You know, it was not the the highest mm-hmm. quality of of residents. So, like you said, mm-hmm. you got to filter through. You know, people. The, the the bottom feeders, they kind of get the picture and they filter out on their own as you start to make improvements. And 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 like you said, keep an eye on things. So I've had a, a similar experience. What would you say is the biggest win you've had, you know, in the business so far, or maybe the best case study 
because uh, I'm sure for every for every loss, there's a, a win to match it. Well, I hope for every loss, there's like 20 wins to match it. <laughs> that, <laughs> At that, least. That's right? more what I'm shooting for. Um, <laughs> and, so, you know, the deal that I'm proudest of is our Renton Highland Manor deal. Also in the Seattle market. I know I'm, I know I'm mentioning a lot of Seattle Love deals. Seattle. We actually invest in California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Arizona. For whatever reason, a lot of the deals I'm mentioning are, are up north. So Renton Highland Manor, to me, is the classic three-pillar communities deal. Like, this is what we're all about. And I'm so proud of it. We, it was a neglected mobile home park. Get this, the prior owner actually bought it because he wanted to tear it down and build a Jimi Hendrix museum there. Jimi Hendrix Museum. Jimi Hendrix, the, you know, iconic rock and roll guitarist, is from Seattle. And he is buried in a cemetery in Renton, Washington. And this park is right across the street from the cemetery. And so owner was a kind of a eccentric real estate guy, loved Jimi Hendrix, wanted to buy the park, tear it down, tried to build a, you know, a five-story rock and roll museum. The city said no. So he sat in the park and he held it for 10 years and he wasn't a mobile home park guy. Right. So he just neglected it. And what happens, you know, weeds start growing and the tenants know nobody's watching and you got potholes in the road and you start getting trash piling up on the tenants lots. And so when we looked at the park, it was a neglected urban park. And I think the market saw it that way. Most people would see it as a trailer park, a junker, right? We saw it as a diamond in the rough, right? There is a massive need for affordable housing in that market. This is providing affordable housing for families who are in the workforce. In-place rent when we bought it, were around $450. And that's a market where, you know, if you're going to rent a studio apartment, you're looking at $1,200 minimum. And if you want a two or three bedroom apartment for a family, you know, you're looking at $1,800 or $2,000. Yeah. So, you know, we just saw so much uh, runway to improve the community, make it a great place for these families and raise the rents while still providing great value. Right. I, I, I don't feel guilty about raising rents when we're providing great value relative to other options in the market. So about the park, we had a meeting for all the residents. I, I speak Spanish pretty well. And so we did the meeting in English and Spanish. People brought their kids. So we had cookies and coffee. We said, hey, we're, we're, let's do this. Right. Let's make this a great place that you want to, you're proud to raise your family in. Paved the roads, built a new parking lot. People were parking in the mud. We paved it, uh, put up a new entrance sign. We brought in brand new homes. And, you know, I feel really proud of what we've done for the residents. And in terms of our investor mission, it was a, you know, home run for us. So we bought it in December 2017. Our purchase price was three and a quarter million. We just refinanced it in June, about, you know, about, about two months ago. Um, so two and a half years after we bought it. It appraised at $5.55 million. Oh, that's great. So, you know, the value increased 70% since we bought it in two and a half years. We refinanced out our entire purchase price, not just our equity investment. We refined out our whole purchase price um, with a 15-year loan, fixed rate, you know, around 3.5%. Oh, that's fantastic. So, I mean, total win for our investors. And in terms of our mission to our residents, something I feel really proud of. Yeah, and you should. Yeah. I'm sure, and I'm, you I'm sure you've got. I'd, I'd be curious to hear your stories about what what's what's your wins or what are the parts you've worked on that you know where you feel really proud of what you did for the residents and really proud of what you did for the investors. Yeah, and it's very similar to you. You know, the 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 neglected park. The owner was an absentee owner. Same same exact kind of story that your your park has. You know, and hmm. uh, it feels good because you know 
the more value, you know, it, I'm sure there was some sweat equity, some, some harder, oh, yeah. you know, stuff you had to go through in that project. So the, the win at the end of the, at the end of the rainbow is that much sweeter, you know? So I, mine yeah. would be, I had a park in Ohio. It, it's an 80 lot park. When we bought it, there was only 40 tenants. And after we bought wow. it, we had to evict 10 of them that were just not paying and not getting on board. So, but we got yeah. it at a great price, seller financed, you know, same type of situation. I actually moved in with my whole family for two months into a house in front of the park and, you know, did everything from bringing in homes, redid the roads, redid the whole well system, drilled a new well. So, you know, it, it, it was, it was some of that, uh, that hard work that made that deal even sweeter when, you know, we were able to refinance and, and, you know, hit a home run. So yeah, dude, I Absolutely. love it. Wow. I would love to love to hear about the value add. You know, a lot of our listeners come from investing mm-hmm. in other asset classes like multifamily mm-hmm. or self storage, you know, and they're not really familiar. You know, there's similar business models, right? Sure. Like add value, refinance, hold forever into perpetuity, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what value add strategies besides obviously just increasing the aesthetics and raising rents, what value add strategies have you implemented and have been successful with? So for me, the single biggest lever we can pull to upgrade the parks is upgrading the housing stock. And that means pulling out the junkers and putting in new, attractive, energy-efficient manufactured homes. And this, by the way, is a function of the markets where we operate. Mm-hmm. We don't have vacancy upside. I'm, not, I'm not, like, you mentioned a park you bought, you know, you bought an 80-lot park. I think you said 30 or 40 tenants. You had to get rid of 10 of them, you know, and you've got a lot of vacancy upside. You know, you're yeah. filling lots, you're boosting your NOI. In the markets where we operate, you know, market vacancy rate is zero, basically. Yeah. Uh, I very rarely buy a park with an empty lot. And so for us, we are proactively creating vacancy. We try, like, and what I mean by that is I don't want that 1960s single wide to stay in that park and keep on trading, trading hands, trading hands, trading hands. Because I don't want to be sitting here in the year 2050 still owning these assets. Yeah. With that same 1960s junker still sitting there. I think it, you know, it's, it works. It kind of, you know, there's kind of, you can look at both sides. On the one hand, manufactured housing is high quality. It works. It provides a home. It's a roof over somebody's head. And, you know, it could keep working for the next 50 years. On the other hand, it's not up to current safety codes. It doesn't meet our aesthetic standards. And the, the biggest way to really create value in the real estate is to upgrade the housing stock that sits on top of it. So that's why we're very proactive as manufacturing home dealers. I have two people full time on my staff who are just doing our running our dealership. Wow. I'm a licensed dealer in four states. I'm a distributor for probably six or seven different factories. We spend a lot of time and a lot of effort proactively trying to buy up the old junker homes, pull them out or demolish them, um, put new homes in, and sell them to new residents. That's great. And then from a number standpoint, how does that work? So say yeah. you you know you're buying a a home, one of those 1960, 1970 models. Mm-hmm you're hauling it out, you know, you're incurring that cost. And then, you know, are you able to sell, I would assume with the, you know, the market demand, you're able to sell the homes in the new spots cash and just kind of make money on the deal or break even, or how does that work? And then what does the numbers on the new lot rent look like? So those are great questions. So typically in most of our markets, these new home sales are not a profit center for us. It's something we do basically on a break even basis in order to improve the underlying real estate. And, you know, ballpark and, and, you know, pricing in our markets higher. I mean, our costs are higher, but then our sale costs tend to be higher. Mm -hmm. So this might surprise some of the guys, some of the operators in the Midwest and the Southeast 
when they hear our numbers. Typically for us to get a double wide into one of our parks, you know, we're looking at minimum $85,000 in cost. You know, the home is 60,000 out the factory door. Um, and then we're spending, you know, $2,500 or 3000 per half of the home. And there's two halves to transport it. And then typically at least 20,000 to get it set up with, you know, a nice skirting and stairs and an awning on it. And up to thirty or thirty-five thousand for the setup, depending on the location. Do we put in an air conditioner or other features? Um, so typically, we have at least eighty-five thousand in it, and we're looking to sell it. Uh, you know, at, at least at break-even, and you know, we work really closely with residents to get them financed and approved to buy that home. So yeah, we love cash buyers. Sometimes we have cash buyers, but we also have a lot of families in the workforce who have ten thousand dollars saved, twenty thousand dollars saved up. And we work really actively with them to get them financing for the rest. Um, by the way, on that point, there's actually a racial equality dimension to this. This is something that I really believe in strongly as an American. You know, we're all here. We all believe in equal opportunity in this country. And a lot of our customers are people who have come from Latin America, particularly Mexico. They live here. They work here. They have, you know, they're productive members of our, of our economy and the workforce. They've got big cash savings. Um, they've got steady income. But some of them might not qualify for traditional financing um, because maybe they don't have a FICO score. And so we have a lot of those customers who we work with closely to try to get, to help them through the financing process. And we're also developing some some of our own in-house financing tools specifically catering to that demographic. That's fantastic. That's very cool. So what would you say is like your 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 true value proposition as an operator? Like what what makes you stand out? Would it be the markets you target? Would it be the, you know, the team behind you? What what would you say is that value prop? Great question. Um, I would say we we know what we're good at. And what we focus on is we only do mobile home parks and RV parks in the western United States. And then within that narrow sandbox, basically the five states where we're really strong operators, we will do a wide range of deals that make sense. Mm-hmm. I think is a differentiator for us. Some people only do senior, they only do all ages, they only do turnarounds. We look at each deal, deal by deal, and say, did economics make sense on this deal? And that lets us be creative. So, you know, I'll do that rough turnaround RV park that I mentioned, which is going to be a total home run for our investors once the value add is done. And I'll also, you know, pay, you know, $10 million and up for a really nice senior park, you know, with a gated community and a pool in the clubhouse, um, if economics makes sense. So strong focus on our product type, strong focus on a specific, you know, market region that we're good at, creativity when we look at deals, and then really strong operations. I mean, I've assembled an amazing team. Um, we do everything in-house, like I said, we're manufactured home dealers. We're doing property management in-house. We've got, you know, a really strong tech-enabled management platform um, going deep to create value in the assets. And then I guess the last piece is taking care of investors. Like, I really pride ourselves in our quarterly reporting, which is not just a financial statement. It's a narrative about what's going on at the property. Sometimes we include pictures. You know, we want to share out what we're doing, both the, the victories and the challenges we face. And I think that creates a lot of trust with our investors that, you know, three pillar communities is not just, you know, some no name investment company. They know Daniel and they know my partner, Yoel, and they know we're out there, you know, working hard, sweating to create value in assets. I love that. That's, 
that's a little about, you know, my company as well is, you know, if anyone follows me on social media, they see me under mobile homes. They see me, you know, turning yeah. off water valves and they see me installing homes and installing skirting. And, you know, I, I encourage people to do that because, you know, we're very hands-on and, and, you know, you're, I would say, you know, younger kind of in, in uh, yeah. the grand scheme of things along with myself. And, you know, I think as a lot of passive investors, you know, they want to invest in guys that have energy and are out there, you know, being hands-on. So kudos to you for, for doing that. I got a lot of respect for you, you and your partner for, for being hands-on like that. Uh, I mean, I, I would say, you know, you set a great example. I, I love, I love the content you put out there showing you do that stuff because you, you know, you know, I imagine when you started out, it was just you or a partner and you didn't have that team, but now you've grown and you've built a team of people underneath you who could be, you know, doing the skirt and getting underneath the home. So you're still out there doing it, right? Because it's, it's core to your value is about as, as an investor, you got to be close to the assets and that, that, that comes, have to be. that comes through loud and clear. Yeah. Have to be, man. Uh, so for investors, a lot of them like to see that the operating partner has skin in the game. Uh, do you invest money in deals or do you roll in an acquisition fee? You know, how do you, you know, do you put skin in the game? I would say. Yeah, we do put skin in the game in every deal. Um, right. I would say the amount is what's material for us. Yeah. And what I mean by that is sometimes investors say, Hey, I want to make sure that the GP has at least 10% skin in the game. Like, look, dude, I got student loans and a mortgage. <laughs> 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 like, if I was a super high net worth guy with a, with a private jet, maybe I'd be putting that cash in. But I think yeah. what's important is I got student loans and a mortgage. A big part of my sweat equity is the fact that I left my corporate job to do this. Stake, you know, stake my reputation on this. I got my friends and my closest family in the deal. That's my yeah. skin in the game. That's huge. I'm not gonna let yeah. the deal go south. And so, you know, maybe I'm putting in twenty thousand or twenty five thousand dollars into a deal, which isn't necessarily huge dollars compared, you know, in the eyes of some of my investors, but it's material for me. Hey, it, I mean, at least you have something. You know, I think that's huge. And you know, like you said. Uh, you know, what, it's not necessarily the dollars that you're sacrificing to put into the deal. So I think that's super powerful. Tell me about like how you deal with getting financing on deals. You know, when I first started, I didn't have a balance sheet big enough. So I had to bring in partners. You know, how do you guys yeah. deal with signing recourse? You know, do you get all non-recourse? You know, how do you, who signs recourse on the debt if it is? It's a great question. So, you know, it's funny. I get pitched by mortgage brokers all the time. A lot, of, a lot of mortgage brokers want our business, right? Yeah. Um, and mortgage brokers have an important role to play and they can provide a ton of value. But at the same time, I believe one of my core job description, one of my core duties is to understand the capital markets and understand the entire spectrum of lending options that are out there so that I can make informed investment decisions. 100%. So just, just to build on that, we have a tiny park, 10 spaces in the Portland, Oregon market. We bought it. It was super clean, 1980s construction, city water, city sewer, great location. We're like, all right, we'll buy a 10 spacer. We already had other things there. No incremental effort. So we bought it for $700,000 in 2017. It's now worth about $1.3 million. Wow. Yeah, just that market appreciation, cap rate compression. Like, you know, that's been a good deal for us. So now I'm looking to refi. And this is a tiny deal, right? We're looking at probably $700,000 loan size. I spent the past three days on the phone calling probably 40 lenders, calling every bank and credit union trying to figure out what's out there, how am I going to invest deal for my investors? And it's, it's actually surprising. I've uncovered some diamonds in the rough that I did not know existed. And I'm looking at on this tiny deal, a local bank will give me, you know, 70% loan to value, five years interest only, fixed rate around like three and a half or 3.75%. 
Wow. That's amazing. Like, and that was a local bank that did that. Yeah. Five years interest only. Yeah. At a sub 4% interest rate at full leverage. So my point is, even on small deals, I spend a lot of time shopping debt. I think that's critical. To answer your question, we are willing to sign personal recourse, which I think just proves our skin in the game. I believe in these assets so deeply. I believe their risk is so low. I'm willing to put my, you know, my, my, my bank account and my personal house on the line. Yeah. But that's how much I believe in these deals. So you know, we're willing to sign personal recourse. That said, a lot of our deals do qualify for agency debt, Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and that's non-recourse debt. And some of your listeners may know or may not know, but some of the cheapest long-term debt you can get. It's, it's amazing how I think the government-backed lenders have understood that manufactured housing is an incredibly low-risk asset that performs no matter what's going on in the economy, whether it's the 08, 09 recession, whether it's COVID, our tenants have skin in the game. They own their own homes. They're paying rent. These loans perform. They perform an important social mission of providing affordable housing. And so I just refinanced three of our parks with Fannie and Freddie during COVID. Oh, um, man, three cash out refinancings. And, you know, on average, we're looking at, you know, 15 year fixed rate debt. You know, the bet, you know, the best rate I lost was 2.96% for 15 year fixed. Wow. Insane, right? Sub 3% Insane. debt for 15 years fixed at, you know, 70% loan to value with 12 years interest only. Oh my so, God. you know, so there's great debt That's out amazing. there. You can get it on the non-recourse side, but even on recourse, you know, we spend a lot of time shopping. I love that. And, you know, I, I just spent like three days similar to you creating a whole spreadsheet of banks for a specific market. Mm -hmm. And we Mm -hmm. also, you know, got quotes from a loan broker and and looked at the options that they could provide. And, you know, in some of our markets, you know, there's, there's only a handful of banks that'll even open their, their doors to mobile home park, you know, operators. So just finding that handful of lenders can be difficult. and, And it takes a lot of phone calls, you know, to, to make those. So, you know, I, I do the same thing that you do. So I, I applaud your, uh, your effort instead of just kind of opening the door to a loan broker and saying, Hey, get this thing funded. So it, it takes yeah. a little more well, elbow I, grease. I, I'm curious to hear, uh, if that elbow grease has paid off for you. And, you know, if you've gone to a loan broker to get quotes and then you've done all, all the legwork yourself to call every local bank and credit union, you know, did you find that the stuff you came up with was better than what the loan broker offered you? It was. It was. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we were able to, you know, get better amortizations and, you know, like those little mm-hmm. credit unions that you were mentioning, that they will mm-hmm. be more flexible than a, a nationwide lender that has, you know, deals that have to fit in a certain box. So mm-hmm. uh, definitely we're able to, to secure some better terms through those little, you know, mom and pop little hole in the wall banks. They're, they're very mm-hmm. flexible and they are recourse, but at the same time, if you're using it kind of as a, as a, you know, a bridge lender just to kind of get in the door, you know, add the value and then refinance, hopefully into like an agency solution. Uh, they could be great options. Mm-hmm. Great. For sure. So where are you going to be in 10 years? You know, how old are you now? What's your end game goal with your, with your career? I mean, I know you mentioned earlier, you want to hold these assets long-term. Do you, do you mm-hmm. see yourself continuing to acquire assets? You know, what does that look like for you in the future? I'm 35. And I feel so blessed to love what I do. Like, and before I got into parks and before I started Trivial Communities in 2017, I never had this sense of calm and happiness and sense of purpose that I have now in my career. Literally, I did all these other things. I got a law degree. I got an MBA. I was a diplomat. I worked at 
McKinsey doing management consulting. And it was always like, oh, what's the next thing? What's the next thing going to be? Like I'm at Parks and it's like, this checks every box for me. I'm providing something important for society. I feel really good providing high quality housing for our residents. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm my own boss, right? I'm building a company based on my own values. And finally, financially, like I really believe in these assets and I believe it will create long-term wealth for my investors and for myself. So this just hits every box. I feel blessed to do something that I love this much. And for me, the game plan is mobile home park until I'm 60, 70, 80. I don't know when I'm going to stop, but I love it. So the plan is to keep building and long-term hold, right? We, our plan is not to, you know, sell out to private equity or to, you know, IPO as a REIT or something like that. You know, we've got great investors who love working with us. They understand this is a long-term hold strategy. And so I hope to be sitting here 40, 50 years from now with a great portfolio, you know, great communities that our residents are proud of and a really good operating team who continues to add value in the assets. I love that. I love that, Daniel. I mean, that's huge. I'll never forget. We bought a property in, uh, it was actually in the Memphis Metro and mm-hmm. I went to, you know, I was walking through it in due diligence and I just remember having that feeling like, all right, you know, I'm once I was in the mobile home park, all right, this is a new area, you know, haven't spent a lot of time in this, this market. But once I was in the mobile home park, it was like this calming feeling like, okay, there's, there's, there's things that need to be done here, A, B, C, and D. And it was a, it was just a satisfying, calming feeling of, you know, understanding yeah. and, and knowing what you're doing. So uh, I love it. Yeah. I love your vision. I love, you know, how you're, you're thankful and blessed because I feel the same exact way. I can, I can relate. Uh, yeah. So for passive investors, you know, what terms do you typically offer? What does that look like? What, what does the GP splits look like? And, uh, you know, is it, is it front-loaded, back-end kind of waterfall? What, what do those look like so that, you know, investors have an idea of what to expect? Yeah. So it changes every deal. Right. Deal by deal, we look at what makes sense. And I think one important thing to point out is we syndicate deal by deal. We don't have a fund. And that gives us the flexibility to set the right terms for each specific deal. So typically, we'll do a 2% acquisition fee up front, 2% of the purchase price. And then the preferred return to investors typically ranges between 5% and 7%, mm-hmm. depending on what the deal will support. And we set that press based on What's, the, what's kind of the, the year one yield? What's the cash on cash? And so it's going to generate 5% cash on cash. We'll set a 5% preferred return. And again, there's kind of a regional element here. You know, we're not buying 10 caps and hitting 50% cash on cash return. You know, in our markets, market rate for mobile home parks ranges from a three and a half cap to a six cap. And wow. so depending on the deal, you know, there'll be a prep between a 5% and 7%. And then beyond that, there's, you know, a promote or a profit split after we've paid investors a preferred return and given them their capital back, you know, that's when we start getting paid. And, you know, typically that's 50, 50, although sometimes it varies depending on the deal. Yeah. And I like how you guys do that where, Hey, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta work for it. You know, you don't, uh, you don't front load it. It's, Hey, you're, you're going to get your money on the back end of this thing when you make the improvements and you add the value. So, uh, I have a very similar structure. So, Kudos to you on that. Um, Thank you. How's your property management team set up? I mean, I know you have uh, quite a few employees. Would you say you have around fifty employees right now? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. What What would you say about that? Could you maybe give us some insights into, you know, maybe how that's set up? Sure. So we have, I think of it as five functions. 
within our company. Number one is acquisitions and growth and investor relations. That's basically all me and my partner handling that at this point. We don't have any employees handling that. The second big function is property management. So on my headquarters team, I have a director of property operations, as well as a regional manager who reports to her. And they oversee all of our on-site managers at the 30 communities. You know, um, we are, we've implemented Asana now. I don't know if you use Asana or any other task management tool. So it's, it's a great online tool to make sure that we're very clear about what's the task, who's accountable for it, when's it going to get done by, if that didn't happen, you know, what's the escalation. So we, we had too much stuff going on email and Word documents that we've now got a really good task management system to make sure we're staying on track and actually creating value in the property management function. That's the second function. The third one is home sales. I've got two people full-time bringing in brand new homes and getting them sold. The fourth function is finance and administration. So I've got four people on the headquarters team, you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable, bookkeeping, HR, that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the fifth function is business analytics. We just uh, made a great hire. Um, someone who has, you know, a business degree, has some experience in the financial world, kind of a, a very sophisticated hire who is, it's been like giving us another set of hands to do all those strategic projects we always wanted to do and all the analytical projects. Now we have somebody. So instead of getting to the bottom of the list, it's like, oh, Ruby can help us, you know, calculate our utility recapture analysis across the parks and, you know, figure out by looking at the data where we might have a water leak or where we should go back to the oh, sewer yeah. company asking for a discount. That's also, huge. it's really helped with our investor reporting. So I'm really excited to have this new business analytics person on our team. I love that. And what do you, what do you guys charge for property management? We do 5% of gross revenue. Okay. And yeah, just to a lot of passive investors listening, you know, there's not like a third-party property management company that you can easily rely on that's, that's professional, that manages mobile home parks or RV parks for that matter. You know, in, in multifamily apartments, you know, there's a lot of third parties that are, you know, very good at what they do and you can, you can rely on them. But in the mobile home park sector, there's not really, a, a, you know, any sort of, consistency there, you know, based on, you know, several markets and, and, you know, and there's not a nationwide provider that I know of. So that's, uh, that's very, you know, impactful that you've built a, a good team and you have, you know, some very good systems there set up. So I really appreciate all of the value you added today, Daniel. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. If listeners want to get a hold of you, Daniel, what is the best way for them to do so? Two ways. One is go to threepillarcommunities.com. Again, that's threepillarcommunities.com. Three is spelled out. Um, and click in the upper right, there's a little box where you can put in your email address and get our mailing list. Um, so feel free to do that. Second way is by email. You can email info at threepillarcommunities.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on. That, that was very valuable. Thanks, uh, everybody, for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.